Hi, I'm Jahana Weaver and you're listening to Tech Mirror. Hi everyone, this is a special episode of Talking Tech Policy because we are no longer Talking Tech Policy. We've taken on a new name, Tech Mirror, reflecting on technology and society. And to christen our rebranded pod, We at the Tech Policy Design Centre, or actually my team, thought that it would be a great opportunity to have a chat about who we are, what we do, and why we're doing it. So I've been asking thorny questions of our guests for uh, almost a year now, and my team thought it would be a wonderful idea if they could put me under the microscope and ask some thorny questions of me. So now I'm going to hand over to my very excited colleague, Ben Gowdy. Hi, Johanna. Hello, dear listeners. I'm Ben Gowdy, researcher at the Tech Policy Design Centre. Keen-eyed listeners might remember me from the bottom of the pod notes. And as we mark our first episode as the newly minted Tech Mirror, it is my delight to emerge from the pod notes into corporeal form to put Johanna in the hot seat. I want to ask her about how she came into tech policy, the opportunities she sees in this space that are so often overlooked, and talk about the future we could have if we get tech policy design right. So, Johanna, thanks for letting me hijack your podcast. Let's get into it. Let's get into it. First things first, why the pod name change? And while we're on the topic, why the pod at all? (laughs) Sure. So, I mean, we started talking tech policy um, after Minister Fletcher, then Minister for Communications, approached us and said that uh, he would like to do uh, an event with us. And we were very brand new at that point as a centre. I think we were two months old. Mm. Um, And I perhaps naively... um, uh, stupidly, uh, suggested that we do a podcast, uh, thinking that I would be able to just go and hijack an existing ANU podcast. And it turns out that podcast hosts are a little bit particular about their podcasts. Mm. And now being one, I can kind of understand that. And it proved to be a little bit more difficult than I expected. And so we were having some chats among the team. I think you had just started as a yeah. researcher. I remember when you said you were floating the idea of doing a podcast and after about three seconds, I said, do it. And you were the only person who said, do it. Uh, because everybody else that I consulted said, look, it's a really, you know, it's quite a serious undertaking. You need to have enough time to do it properly. In the end, uh, we decided we were just going to go for it on the proviso that we appreciated that it would evolve and mm. um, morph uh, as we went on. And so, We took the name Talking Tech Policy because that's what we're doing. Um, But what we want to do with the podcast is actually much more than that. And so the new name, uh, Tech Mirror, uh, is um, picking up on a concept that I talk about all of the time, and that's that technology is a mirror that reflects society and it reflects the way that technology is designed, manufactured, mm. used and disposed. And so, you know, what I mean by that is um, when people are designing technology, um, they are often thinking about things like speed and accessibility and maybe not as much about privacy and mm. security, whereas now increasingly that's becoming something that users are demanding. When we're manufacturing technology, often um, historically the focus has been on cost. And when you are looking at low-cost technologies, that's quite different technologies to, for example, sustainable technologies. Um, Mm. The way that we use technology, um, whether or not users themselves are prioritising privacy, safety, security, sustainability, or whether we just take the technology that's given to us because we want the convenience of the iPhone. Um, The way that we 
dispose of technology, that we might just put our computers in a bin as opposed to thinking about, well, that then ends up in an e-waste slum in mm. Africa or India, um, as opposed to prioritising repair and sustainability in our technologies. And so the thing about framing technology as um, being shaped by the way that we design, manufacture, use and dispose of technology is that, A, that's already happening, but B, as society changes, the technology will also change. And so that places quite a big responsibility on society. But I, I the, the impetus of the podcast is to say we can have a much more conscious conversation about what we want technology to do. And I think that's a really exciting opportunity for us because Absolutely. we actually have the power to shape technology. And the podcast is about empowering our listeners to take a more active role in that conversation. So you've asked this of, of other guests, but I want to ask you, when was your first interaction or memory with a computer and the internet? Well, I don't actually remember my first interaction with the internet, but I remember getting our first PC um, and I remember the dial-up tone of the internet. Um, and I used to, I would have been about, I think, seven or eight. It didn't have an internet connection, but it was a very old, clunky MS-DOS computer and there was a program on it called Paint. I think it still exists, but very rudimentary art, basically. Mm. And my best friend, Christina, and I used to get onto the computer and make these maps uh, on paint and then we would print them on a dot matrix black and white printer oh my God. and then we would take them outside and we would play this game called Through the Doors where it was kind of a, a, um, a play on the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe series where we would go into these imaginary worlds and I lived on a farm and so we'd take this map and go and have this adventure. Um Kind of, I guess, a mix between Minecraft, modern day Minecraft, and Pokemon Go, maybe. Um, That's amazing. Yeah, it was pretty. It was a pretty cool. I just experience. hunted my siblings on Nintendo sixty four. Like I didn't. <laughs> I, I didn't. I wasn't. My parents weren't cool enough to have a Nintendo sixty four. So yeah, I was stuck with a dot matrix printer. Oh, instead. I think. I think you won out. That is a far more idyllic childhood image. I think. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe. Um, yeah. The the other story that I thought might be interesting to share. I have this distinct memory as a kid as well. I probably was maybe f uh, a few years older, so maybe um, uh, 10 or 11, and using a CD-ROM Encyclopedia Britannica for the mm. first time. And I was sitting next to the red books of the actual Encyclopedia Britannica. Mm. And what blew my mind was that it had autocorrect on the spelling. And so uh, it meant that I didn't actually need to be able to spell something in order to look it up. And that was mind-blowing for me because I was a terrible speller as a child, mm. really had this thirst for knowledge, was a great student but terrible speller. And mm. so it really opened up this whole new world for me. And I subsequently at 23 was diagnosed with chronic dyslexia and, and now look back on that and go, oh my God, that's a really palpable example of technology making yeah. somebody's life better. I didn't know it at the time and, and didn't pinpoint it as that. But I, I come back to that when people are talking about technology being an enabler and opening up new worlds for people.
Wow, yeah. The f- Once again, much cooler story than me because the first CD-ROM, CD-ROM <laughs> game I remember playing was a little Harry Potter game I got out of a cereal box. Uh, and I, that, that was my first really fond memory of actually, wow, this is an actual computer game. I would have been about five maybe and I was just running around um, and I can still actually remember it. it I didn't realize how significant it was. Um, so moving on from uh, computer games from our childhood. Um, I just wanted to now ask about Australia's role in shaping uh, global tech policy. So a bit of a pivot there. Uh, talking <laughs> of tech policy, uh, you've been Australia's lead negotiator at the UN for processes concerning cyberspace. You've had years of experience working with counterparts around the world in cyber affairs. You've been in the room during some big movements in international law when it comes to cyberspace operations. And if listeners would like a thorough rundown of this work, I recommend listening to your speech, the International Conference on Cyber Conflict that we <laughs> uploaded a couple episodes ago, just a shameless plug. But I gave all of that context because I want to ask you, what was Australia's impact in those international negotiations? How significant would it have been? How much would things have gone differently, do you think, if Australia was not there like we were? Look, it's always so hard to actually answer a question like that because how... how Hot seat. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell the power's going to Ben's head? He's really enjoying this. It's brilliant. Um, so, look, I, I think the thing that jumps to my mind in that is what impact does Australia have? The conclusion of um, a set of negotiations that had gone on for two years, uh, I was in the room with the Russian head of delegation, the US head of delegation, the Chinese head of delegation and myself, and I was holding the pen as Australia's um, lead negotiator. That's pretty extraordinary given um, the weight of the countries around the room. and But what I would say is that is that was not necessarily reflective purely of my negotiation brilliance. It was the fact that two and a half years earlier, uh, the foreign minister, the secretary of DFAT, Francis Adamson at the time, and the ambassador for cyber affairs, Toby Feakin, made a call that this was a set of processes that were important to Australia and we were going to invest in them. And so I'd spent two and a half years working full time on these processes, flying around the world, uh, building relationships, building trust and getting to a point where Australia was in the room at the time when it really mattered. And, you know, I, I think I will forever look back on those negotiations and that that conversation in particular where we agreed that international humanitarian law applies to cyber operations conducted during armed conflict. It will always, you know, the, for me that will be a career highlight. Mm-hmm. But it's also something that Australia should be incredibly proud mm. that we uh, prioritised and uh, made that the issue that we took into that final set of negotiations. So the message for this is so often in this space when you're talking about tech policy, because technology is global, because these issues are global and cross borders, there's a sense of what can we do, um, a sense of sort of helplessness, I guess, or a lack of empowerment. And what I would say is when Australia makes up our mind to focus on these issues, um, we really do have impact and it is possible um, to achieve really significant outcomes. And I, again, find that to be really exciting. It's it's just a matter of getting people to a point of realising that and prioritising it. Mm. So Australia does have agency and impact in this space. You have a clear idea of what our strengths are and our gaps. As you were finishing your term at the UN, what made you realise that setting up the Tech Policy Design Centre is what you needed to do? 
Well, I mean, over that course of two and a half years, but also um, many years I spent um, working on Australian cyber diplomacy uh, before that, it really was palpable how every country in the world, and I really do mean every country mm-hmm. in the world, is looking at what we need to do uh, to put in place policies, regulations, strategy, legislation to get the most out of technologies and to prevent um, the negative uh, impacts that some technologies are causing. And so there was this increasingly countries turning to Australia and saying, okay, what are you doing? What should, you know, how can we um, learn from you? I, um, having worked in the Australian government, knew how the sausage was made in <laughs> Australia. And of course, I was a really good diplomat and, and was saying, come learn from Australia. There's lots that we can, uh, lots of knowledge that we can share. But I was also looking around and going, well, who is looking at how we can design technology policy to get the best out of technology rather mm. than just to regulate for regulation's sake. Mm. Um, and there really isn't and wasn't a lot of people um, that were not just admiring the problem um, but helping to provide solutions. And so that's where the idea of the Tech Policy Design Centre came from. It, mm. It's how do we actually work with government with industry um, and with academia who holds so much um, so much knowledge and expertise, how can we bring all of these uh, different groups together to actually co-design solutions to get the most out of technology? Um, and that was the rationale for establishing the Tech Policy Design Centre. Right. And, and I've and we've all talked about, you know, within the team about the mission of maturing the tech ecosystem. That is essentially the common thread between all our projects um, that we are doing. So I want to ask you, what does a healthy tech ecosystem actually look like? Mm. I love this question. And I thought about it all morning as I tramped up and down um, Mount Ainsley this morning. (laughs) I think... um, I think for me, it starts right at the very beginning. So it means that Australia has a really healthy research and development Mm -hmm. um, field. Australian research is being snapped up Mm -hmm. by foreign direct investment or by foreign investment investors saying, we want that amazing innovative stuff Mm. that Australia is producing. But also we've got the right policy settings that uh, innovators actually want to establish companies in Australia so that we're establishing companies, those companies are operating in Australia, we're getting new industries and new jobs. And, and to do that, we really need to have the right policy settings. So in this magic world where we have a mature um, tech ecosystem, Australia is a world leader in particular technologies, not Mm -hmm. in everything, not in all technologies. I think, you know, we need to be realistic, but we are at the forefront of tech, uh, the development of technologies. And that is already the case, but it's about getting the settings right. And the the amazing thing is if we do that, Australians really benefit from this technology, from having technology that is working for us, that is making our lives better, not just easier. So imagine, Mm. Ben, if you could control your data, you could say, yes, I want to have direct advertising and um, targeted ads. But if you don't, you can turn it off. Imagine that in a world. Or 
Imagine a world where you have the benefits of precision medicine and imagine how that would revolutionise the treatment of cancer. Um, or my uh, mystery knee pain, yeah. Or your mystery knee pain, so sure. And imagine if when you're having uh, those types of treatments, you're not worrying about privacy and security because you know that we've got the policy settings right. Uh, a world in which we have digitised government services that actually work and that also have have that privacy and efficiency and security built in. And of course, the benefits of, of a mature tech policy ecosystem or a mature tech ecosystem are not just for Australia because advances in agri-tech, for example, is what's going to help us to feed the mm. world. Quantum computing will allow us to better measure and then manage the impact of climate change, to predict and mitigate bushfires, but also to have green technologies powering the next generation of Australian industries. And what I really am passionate about in this is it's not just the technologies that are going to make this happen. It's the technologies plus the right policy settings. Mm. If we just have the technologies, we're not actually going to get all of those benefits. We need the technology plus the considered policy settings to shape that mature tech ecosystem um, and to build the future which we all want to live in. And I know that sounds really grand and a little naive, but that's literally the world that we have. We are the technologies that we um, are making and designing today will mm. be shaping the world that we live in tomorrow. Um, and again, that's um, a super exciting challenge uh, to have. Um, it's not easy because how do you have the balance between uh, encouraging that innovation and driving that opportunity, but also being realistic about um, what we want from technology and not just adopting technology for technology's sake. Yeah. And look, I wouldn't even say that's actually naive. I think that's a refreshing dose of realism that's actually identifying not just the challenges but the opportunities there are if we do tackle these tech policy design uh, dilemmas um, and sometimes just not dilemmas but opportunities that um, confront us now in the present and into the future. So speaking of the future, uh, a big part of tackling these issues um, of getting tech policy design right will also be tooling up the new generation um, that is now sort of wading into this whole space. And you've told me before that a key audience we do want to reach is young people uh, who are interested in the tech ecosystem with all its promise and challenges, but don't really know enough to get as involved as they want to be to situate themselves where it's all happening. So what specific advice would you give someone looking to develop a career in this area? <laughs> well, I think the first thing, Nick Davies has this wonderful saying that tech policy is just everything policy. <laughs> and, you know, I, I come back to that. I think that's really, it is true because technology is so pervasive in our lives. And when we talk about technology policy, really what we're talking about is policy. Mm -hmm. And yet I think a lot of policymakers still have for whatever reason, still have a sense of reticence or fear when it comes to tech policy. And likewise, a lot of people who design and make technology um, are not interested or, again, have that reticence and fear when it comes to when it comes to policy. And so what I would say in this space is we all use technology. We all have a stake in the future of the technology that we use. So don't wait to be comfortable in mm -hmm. the tech policy space. You're never going to be comfortable mm. in this space. And that actually is part of the brilliance of it, right? We are looking at evolve technology that is evolving very, very quickly 
we are answering or trying to find solutions to questions that haven't been asked before. uh, And we're doing it at speed and at scale. It's not comfortable. That's actually what is awesome about working in this field. (laughs) And so don't wait to feel like you have the expertise in the space. Dive in and start to build that expertise through experience. Um, That would be my, my key piece of advice to people in this field. Absolutely. Now, look, uh, I've loved this discussion. This has been fantastic. Uh, I just have one last question, which is the one we ask all of our guests. Uh, we've already uh, canvassed um, some areas to to focus on, but are there any uh, books, podcasts, Twitter folks you you would recommend, uh, the li- thought leaders in the, the tech and tech policy space, or just as a nice treat on a Sunday afternoon? <laughs> I'm going to focus on the nice treat on a Sunday afternoon because I think that um, – um, that is, you know, when I'm sitting on my deck in the sunshine, that's what I like to focus on. Um, books that I I always recommend to everyone who asks me this question. The first one is Code 2.0 by mm-hmm. Lawrence Lessing. This is actually quite an old book now, 2006, um, but it's the book that got me interested in tech policy. Um, mm. I picked it up in Heathrow Airport uh, back when I was just a normal diplomat, not a cyber diplomat, uh, and it really picks up and challenges this idea that technology is plastic. Uh, Mm -hmm. that we can make technology different and that if we want technology to be made differently, we need to demand that it be made differently. And this book Mm. blew my mind. I was like, huh, I had literally never thought about it. I had just used my computer and my phone and hadn't, you know, I'm I'm not a technologist by any um, stake of the word. And so that idea of the policy and the environment shaping technology really, for me, came from that book. Um, the other book that I would highly recommend uh, is a book uh, by Adam Segal from Council of Foreign Relations in the US, and it's called The Hacked World Order. Mm-hmm. Um, there's lots of books that look at uh, the international dimensions of uh, technologies. What I love about Adam's book is that he looks at it from the perspective of how countries are using technologies um, to influence power Um, the power dynamics among countries and how that impacts on citizens. Mm. And that is something, you know, a lot of of books in this space focus on, you know, the international security dimensions or the offensive cyber or sort of the sexy stuff of it. Adam does that as well in his book, but he really focuses in Hacked World Order of how the use of technologies by countries is shaping the world order, but also Mm. shaping the worlds of citizens um, uh, from a national perspective as well. And then the third and final thing I wanted to throw in here is a wonderful set of books. It's a set of three books. They're graphic novels by, um, uh, they're called The Illumini Files um, by um, some uh, authors uh, in based in Melbourne and Perth. And they are just an awesome sci-fi set of books set in the future. You have this wonderful AI that's doing fun things in space and they're just really wonderful books to read and think about the future of technology and as you're reading them to think about, well, actually what technologies do you want um, to be shaping the future that we all live in? Mm. And I can absolutely concur that Johanna has a pretty good eye for graphic novels. I've seen her office. There's some cool one on, cool ones on the shelves. Uh, and I also like how uh, she nominated career-changing literature as her Sunday afternoon treat. Oh, I've Files as well. Thank you very much. Johanna Weaver, thanks for your time. Thanks, Ben. <laughs> 
Tech Mirror is a podcast of the Tech Policy Design Centre at the Australian National University. Please leave us a review, rate us, subscribe or tell your friends about us. We also love it when you send us questions or comments. We read them all and we love hearing from you almost as much as we love getting your ratings. You can find us at Tech Policy Design on Twitter or LinkedIn or Google Tech Policy Design Centre and follow the links. This episode was produced by Jack Fox with research support by Ben Gowdy.